Thank you for tuning in to listen to this sermon from the Ville Church. To find out more about us and our weekly scheduled services, please visit theville.church. We're in a series right now called Solus. Solus is Latin for alone, only. And 500 years ago, there was this thing that happened. The, the church up until that point for 1,500 years after Jesus started to maybe take some wrong turns. And over time, they got way off track. And they had this huge reformation. So people protested against where the church was, and they tried to reform it from the inside out, and it didn't go well. So they had to actually start something new. And what we're going through is basically the five essentials of what Christianity is. There's five solaces, solaces that kind of define that error. And last week was the first one, and it was Scripture alone, which means that Scripture is our highest authority, that this is literally God's Word recorded for us to know God more, to know his character more, to know what he's done throughout history um, and what he's continuing to do today. And it's an alive and active word. And this week is week two out of five, and it's grace alone. So we have three more weeks. Next week, me and Jay are actually both going to be out of town. So we have a surprise preacher coming for y'all from inside the room. Now, who's it going to be? Look around. Who's it going to be? I'm not telling you. Anyway, so he'll be here next, and then Jay will hit the final two um, when that comes about. So this week is grace alone, right? Grace, grace is one of those words. You know what I'm saying? Like, everyone has heard of the word grace. Everyone has kind of, it, it means a lot of things to different people, right? Um, we know it belongs, it belongs in Christianity somehow, but, but what does it actually mean? Because to me, what I've felt before and I've actually seen other people feel before is many of us think like this. We're like, God is gracious? Huh, that's cool. That's pretty awesome. Or we think like, God gives grace? Wow, good stuff. You know, like it's just a generic word for our culture and it's a word that represents good things that we hope to see in society. Like, yeah, grace, hope, love, peace. Like you see it in cursive on walls. And, but the thing is, grace actually means nothing if you don't understand the context of what it's for. So the reason today I'm really excited to be solely talking about grace this morning is because grace is grace. Grace is the bedrock, the core, the root, the basis, the whole enchilada if you will, of Christianity. It is everything. Without God's grace, we have nothing. And if we ever really captured a glimpse of what God's grace actually is, like if we actually understood what it is, I mean, we would weep. We would fall to the ground and tremble. And, and we'd laugh. And we'd dance. Some of us no, all of us would actually dance. No liquid courage required because we would be so thankful. We would wildly, unabashedly, with immense joy, praise God and dance. And so today, I want to ask you all a question is, have you experienced God's grace lately? Do you know God's grace? Have you experienced that kind of joy, that kind of, that feeling lately. 
Um, because out of all the words that encapsulate this Christian gospel, so there's a lot of words that we say, the Christian gospel, what, what, kind, of, what kind of sums it up? Grace is the key ingredient, and by necessity, also the first ingredient of the gospel of Jesus. Everything flows from grace, and everything builds on top of God's grace. It is essential. If you don't understand grace, you probably don't understand the whole Christian thing. Um, a quick definition of grace is this. Grace is the completely undeserved loving commitment of God to his people. The completely undeserved loving commitment of God to his people for some unknown reason to us. Like, we can't even begin to understand why this is the case. But God gives himself to us. God attaches himself to us, and he acts to rescue us, sinners, people who have turned away from him. When wrath should have come our way, saving grace comes instead. It, it's one of those things where we try and understand, like, logically or intellectually or whatever, but it's so mind-blowing that it's going to take eternity to actually understand what this actually means. Um, so this morning I'm going to read from the first part of Ephesians 2 with the hope that we all gain a better understanding of God's ongoing grace to us. So if you want to read on your um, electronic smart equipment, you can do that. Um, or if you have a paper Bible, you can read that too. But it's Ephesians 2. We're going to read 1 through 10 together, and it's going to be up on the screen too. <clears throat> As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the desires, its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raises up with Christ and seated, or, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we were God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So to understand even the context of where grace fits in in our life, you have to go back to verse 3. If you want to understand grace, you have to understand that we all deserve God's wrath. We all deserve God's wrath. God declares that our sin has made us indebted to him. We owe God our death because we have turned away from his life. So we owe him our death, and God owes us nothing. I, I want you to really think about that. The context of grace, God owes us nothing, nothing good, because we have 
we are solely the ones that have turned away from God. God did nothing wrong. We were the wrong ones. And God owes us nothing. And it's a tough phrase to swallow. See, when we sin, we deserve to die, to be cut off from God, enslaved to Satan, because that's who we're following instead, and experience God's wrath. That is what we deserve from sinning from this perfectly holy, just, all-powerful, and righteous God. That's what we deserve when we go, eh, to God. Like, God, eh, yeah, it's cool. That's what, we, that's what we deserve when we ignore God. When we, knowing like what he's commanded to do and then doing the opposite because we want to. Um, it's, it's what we get for rejecting God as the one true and living God for these other little G gods that we call idols. These created things that God himself created, but we worship that instead of the creator. So God owes us nothing. And we owe him our death. So I heard this the other day. Actually, it was yesterday. I heard this on the radio. I don't know who said it. And I'm still feeling convicted about it. So I wanted to share it with you guys so you could feel convicted about it so I'm not the only one. So I'm just going to tell you the quote this person said. And hopefully it strikes you as hard as it struck me. So this man said this short phrase. If we prayed half as much as we watched TV, we would see a revival in our country. This is the equivalent of taking your glove off your hand and going right across my face. Because when he said that, I I didn't hear anything else he said. And it struck me. I was like, I think that's actually probably true. If we prayed half as much as we watch TV, we would see a revival in our country. And what really humbled me about the statement is not only does my prayer prayer life not match half of how much I watch TV, because that is true, but that there are real benefits and power in prayer, yet I choose to numb myself and actively distance myself from God with TV. TV is not evil, by the way. You can watch TV. You have grace to do that. TV is not evil. It's just the idol we lift up and choose to spend time with over God. That's what's evil, actually. God does not owe me anything. But maybe his righteous wrath, because I choose to spend well over half my time from praying to watch TV. And I know that's all of us. I mean, actually, that's not true. There are some people in here that I really believe are like prayer warriors who are awesome. But for the most part, man, there's something about watching TV where you can just get away from everything. And, but get away to where? And why are we not getting away from everything with God? So God does not owe us anything but his righteous wrath. Because we continually choose other things to worship and spend our time on over God. All right, but then we go to verse 4 through 7. It's only against the backdrop of real, deserved possibility of God's wrath. But that's actually a thing looming over all of humanity. And it's true. Only on that backdrop does his mercy and love actually shine out in all their radiance and brilliance. 
you have to know what's looming and what we caused to actually really see the brilliance and radiance of his love and mercy that he's given to us. Because the contrast between the two is so stark. We deserve wrath, but God gives us grace. We, we deserved wrath. What? God gives us, God's magnificent rescue of us from death, from bondage, and from wrath is all grace, all of his own doing. None of our doing. Instead of death for us, God makes men and women alive in Jesus. Instead of bondage to sin, God frees us from Satan's claim over our life so that we can now serve God. Instead of sitting in this constant state of condemnation, knowing what we deserve, God rescued us by raising us up and seating us with Christ in the heavenly realms and giving us an eternal view instead of a temporary condemned one. This is all by God's grace, all by God's initiative, all by God's doing. We didn't do anything in this. We are just witnessing what God did. The whole rescue procedure from when we first fell at the beginning and sin contaminated all of humanity and God made a promise to rescue us, the whole mission, the whole Bible, all of it was designed, or designed to testify and to reveal the grace of the one true and living God, that God is that gracious that he doesn't give up on his people and that he rescues his people. So then we move to 8 and 10, and the question now becomes, what happens after we receive God's grace in Jesus Christ? What, what happens after that? It's like this amazing, unbelievable news that God is Emmanuel. He came near to us when we were far from him, and that he's given us a way to be reconciled back to him, the created, back to the creator, how it was originally supposed to be, so we can feel fully alive, fully content, fully at rest. And then we say, yes, I want that. What happens after that? Because we're still here. Right? We're all still here. Um, so that, that's kind of where I want to stick at that part for the rest of, this, rest of this sermon. Because part of the reason I chose this passage is because while talking about grace, Paul actually illustrates a huge contrast between the spiritually dead who were once walking in disobedience and sin, and those who are newly created in Christ to to a life of good works, all right? So verse 10, specifically, for we, were, for we are God's handiwork, that verse, it's extremely important because it's a vivid reminder that there is more to salvation than just getting saved. There's more to salvation than just getting saved. Getting saved is literally the beginning of eternity, for new creatures in Christ. Eternity doesn't start when you die. Eternity starts when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You are in. Eternity is happening now. So if you're a Christian, you are in eternity now. God doesn't call you to himself and then go, okay, glad you're here. Now just go exist. Like what kind of loving, gracious guy would that be? Like, oh, I'm glad you came. Now figure out what you want to do and figure out the rest of it. He, he doesn't say just exist with no instruction or guide on how to do that. Part of God's grace to us 
is that he gave us instructions on how to exist under his authority and under his grace. Of course, this is where it gets tricky. And we probably all know this in some form or fashion, but it gets tricky and messy right when we get to this point. Because you get this whole thing of how does grace and works actually fit together? So to help us understand, I was reflecting this week about it, of my own personal journey of experiencing grace that I'm going to share with you guys. So when I became a Christian in college, it was because I understood grace. It was the only reason. I was searching for, I was searching for something. Like, I knew I was a terrible person. Like, that hit me, uh, chain of events, perfect storm stuff that happened, that I was like, okay, it's official. I am the worst person I know, by far. And decisions I made brought me to a point where I'm like, no one would want to be my friend. No one would want to even be associated with me. I'm a horrible person. And I was like, I need something. And my friend challenged me. He said, you know, you should go your freshman year of college. This was summer going into college. You should go your freshman year of college and just give up drinking, give up smoking, give up girls, and just seek out this God, you know. And he was a Christian. And I was like, I'll do that except for the Christian God. I'll see all the other ones because they seem a lot cooler. And, you know, like, because Buddhism's cool and, you know, these different, you know, gods and arts and whatever. I was like, that's kind of cool. So I'll look into it. But everything I came across was like, here's what you do to earn salvation. Here's what you do to get to God. And I was at a place where I was like, I'm a horrible human being. I cannot do these things. I could try as hard as I could, and I know I could not do it. But then somewhere freshman year, it clicked in that God initiated a relationship with me. The one true and living God actually initiated a relationship with me by offering himself up for this prideful, egotistical, basically maniac, right, taking on all the consequences of my sin, even though I actually owed God all the consequences of my sin. He took it for me. He cleared my debt in Jesus and called me back to himself just because that's who he is. That's who the God is. That's who the one true and living God is. And that God, like, that God's love was that great in this world? I want to know that God. His, his mercy was that rich? I was stunned into conversion. Like, I, I hoped beyond a doubt that that was true. Because if that was true, Lord, take my life. Because I, please let that be true. And I just wanted to know that God that could be that gracious, that loving in the midst of our world, right? A world that you have to earn others' love and respect. You have to do the right things to gain it from them. Or it's, it's this world where you're trying to constantly convince people that you have value and worth. But then God says, you don't have to earn it. I'm giving it to you. And you, I'm already convinced that you have value because I made you. And it's like, the, that changed everything. What am I even seeking to try and do? So I bathed in that grace. I, I, I mean, I was washing up under the shower of grace like a long time. And I was happy. I was so thankful. And everything was different. Like the world looked different, actually. But then, you know, time passes, right? And we all have this experience. Like, amazing. When you become a Christian, it's so awesome. And then time passes. 
And I realized a lot of the struggles that I had before um, I was saved actually came creeping back up into my life. Um, that my selfishness actually didn't disappear, amazingly. It was still there, and it was still hurting other people, and it was hurting my relationship with God. That it was using God's grace, God's huge, immense love for me as this security blanket to do whatever I wanted. I mean, at the end of the day, I got the golden ticket, right? My assurance to heaven was secure no matter what I did. And I want the gold. I wanted it. And I got the gold ticket. And I was still lost with the gold ticket and floundering, not sure what to do now that I was saved, that I just resorted back to old habits. And that's when I discovered that God actually graciously gave us laws and the commands to live by. That that's something he did out of his grace, that he revealed himself enough to show us commands and laws. And if you know me, you know I'm pretty competitive. So now I knew the rules, so let's play. You know, I'm going to be all-star super Christian because if that's how it's supposed to be, I can do this. And so I, I tried, and I was going, right? But then after a while, my joy left. It wasn't fun anymore. And soon after that, my love for people followed suit. I didn't care about people. And not, not even that I didn't care about people, I was looking at people sinning and thinking, come on, figure it out. It's not that hard, bro. Just stop. Are you serious? Like, this is who I became. I saw people using grace as an excuse to sin. And I was bitter and I was angry at these fake Christians abusing God's grace, pretending that there were no consequences for their sins. But after a while, I realized I was right back to this prideful, egotistical maniac, just on a different side. I was back to square one. So it wasn't all one side or the other. It was a balance. That's what I was, I was like, yes, it's a balance. You have to balance the two. So it's this seesaw between grace and the law. And when I'm sleeping, slipping up a bunch under grace... Well, I need to get more serious about my obedience to King Jesus and his law. And when I'm verging on being legalistic and joyless, I need to give myself some grace to sin a little bit. It's not the end of the world. And back and forth we go, right? This is where I was at. Back and forth we're going. Always trying to balance the scales. Um, who can relate to any of this? Because I think this is all of us. So if you're not raising your hand, you're a liar. Anyway. So back and forth, we're trying to balance the scales. We're trying to find that perfect sweet spot of getting our heart right with God. But here's the problem. We reject God by rejecting his law and living any way we want. I think all of us would agree with that, right? We reject God when we say, God, what you said is not true. I'm going to just do whatever I want. Most of us know that. And there's Christians, me, who still knowingly reject God's commands, and then use phrases like, well, I'm saved. I'm a Christian. Only God can judge me. To, like, try and ease our conscience to live however I see fit, or however you see fit. But that's not the only way you can reject God. You can also reject God by embracing and obeying God's law so that we get right with God. These, 
These people who reject the gospel of grace in favor of doing the right thing, they look like Christians who are trying to do God's will. Until you get to know them, and they're cold, angry, bitter, and even hateful. And it's like, wow, on the outside, it seems like you're trying to do the right, but like, I don't want to be like you. And this is a problem with our seesaw. If we feel legalistic, we, we'll have some fun, let a few like, sins slide, and call it grace to balance away from legalism. But that's not grace. That's called irreligion. It's choosing to do whatever you want. Okay? And then if we feel like we're slipping too much, that we determine what that is. Now we vow to be more serious about following God's commands as if that will make us right with God. But that's actually the very definition of religion. So the seesaw that we think is like balancing law and grace is actually balancing irreligion and religion. The problem is both religion and irreligion stand opposed completely against the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's, it's opposed. It's not even different. It's actually opposed to the gospel of Jesus. Now, that's a lot of theory, right, and a fake seesaw. But how does this actually play out? I think this is most clearly played out in the prodigal son parable. Um, I think a lot of us have heard it before, but there's a father, and he has two sons. Um, and it's a story about the younger son, mainly, and because it's called the prodigal son singular. But really, it should be called the prodigal sons, because it's about two sons. Um, and it, it shows us two ways we can actually reject God. Both sons actually reject God. So are you all familiar with the prodigal son story? Hopefully. If not, you should read it afterwards. Anyway, I don't have time to get into it. But I'm just going to pretend that you already know what it is. So the prodigal son story, you have one side, this younger son who rejects. He, he, he rejects God by choosing to do whatever he wants. He takes his inheritance and he goes out to, you know, ancient Vegas and blows it all. And just every cent of it blows it. So he rejects the father because he's like, give me my inheritance. I'm out. I'm going to do whatever I want with it. And then you have the older brother, his older brother rejecting the father because he was at home still, but he was solely focused on what he deserved for his commitment and service to the father. He was focused on his payout one day, doing the right thing to get his payout rather than actually being with the father. And I'd never thought about it before this week, but it's interesting that during the prodigal son, the, the one that went away, and he just, you know, ruined. He has nothing. He's actually at a point where he literally has his face in the, in the pigsty trough food with pigs, eating food because he has nothing. He's starving, and he has nothing. And he's like, I've literally hit beyond rock bottom. He has this swing of like, I'm going to do whatever I want. And he comes to the other side of his older brother. And this is what it says. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? 
But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Basically, let me earn my way back into your good graces. Please let me do something. He, he went to where we all impulsively go to please the father, which is the law to doing the right thing. We think, we blew it. Now, if I serve him right, if I do the right thing, hopefully it's enough for the the father to take me back. He can't even begin to imagine, even fathom, that after spending all of the father's mercies, that he would have any mercy left for him. It it can't even, he can't even process that. He can't even think about that. He's like, I'm going to go work for my dad, and hopefully, after enough time has passed and I'm faithful enough, maybe he'll take me back as a son. Maybe. Fingers crossed. And so he actually just shows how alike he is to the the older brother in his flesh. The only difference is the older brother has the whole time been relying on his works to get what he wants from the father. But we know what happens when the younger son heads home. He's full of shame, full of remorse. He's embarrassed. He's probably looking straight down. Not even, he has like one hill left. He's like, should I even go on the hill? They're going to see me, and it's going to just be the worst day of my life. But the father was outside the house already scanning the horizon since he had left, hoping that his son would return. And he's desperate and on watch for his child's return. And when the father sees him, what happens? He sprints towards him. He's overwhelmed with, his, with joy that his son actually came home. That he's back. He embraces him. He throws a monster party for him. The one that just blew everything. And where's the older brother? Cold, angry, bitter, can't even be near the party. How many of y'all know Christians like that? that they can't even celebrate sinners being rescued, that people who have sinned greatly coming back to the Father, and they're like, oh, God, they just keep sinning. They're terrible. I've, I just, I don't know why they're getting blessed. I'm over here I'm working hard. I'm doing the right stuff, and my life is hard. Why are they getting blessed? Why do they get a party? See, I have a really hard time understanding grace and an even harder time believing that it's actually true. Our natural understanding of everything, that it's in our sin, is fix it, get it right, stop sinning, stop messing up, or else. Come on. You, 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 I mean, you know what it is. Like, you stop sinning. Grace makes no sense to our flesh. C.S. Lewis said this one time. He said, For my own part, I hate and distrust reactions not only in religion, but in everything. Reactions not only in religion, but in everything. Luther surely spoke very good sense when he compared humanity to a drunkard who, after falling off his horse to the right, falls off the next time to the left. Every time we fall off with God, 
we try to get right with him. We try and get right back up. We try and get right with him, but we overemphasize the other side. And then when we get back on, we fall off the other side. And we keep falling off both sides. And this is that seesaw. Like, we're like, well, I'm just, I'm using grace as a license to sin, and it's catching up with me. I, I need to get back on with God, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow God. I'm going to do awesome. And you get back on, and then you fall the other side, and you're like, I have no joy. I, I can't do it. Or I'm doing great, and I don't need God. And it's like, no, that's not true. I need God. I need to get back up, and I need to experience his grace and I need to stop being so serious about this law thing. And you push up and you fall right to the other side. I'm positive, I'm positive that Paul is extremely aware of our human tendency to do this. To go from religion to irreligion and religion and irreligion and back and forth. And I say that because in Paul's letters in the Bible, he begins every letter, every message with this gospel presentation. The longer the letter, the longer the gospel presentation. The first couple chapters in Galatians, Ephesians, uh, Philippians, and Colossians are presenting this gospel foundation. Before talking about anything else, he just says, what is the gospel? In Romans, it's the first 10 chapters that he presents what the gospel is before he talks about anything else. Paul even bookends all of his letters with a gospel proclamation. Like, so every one of his letters begins with some form of like grace to you, and it ends with some form of grace with you. It's a grace sandwich, right? So why, is, why does Paul insist on doing this? Why does he insist on taking so much time explaining what the gospel is and taking so much effort to begin and end with grace? Because we have an extremely hard time believing that all of Christian life is grace, that we can't earn anything, that we, we can't earn God's love, that we can't earn righteousness. It's the number one thing that we struggle with because we're prideful and we come back to ourselves and rely on ourselves. And so Paul always is just marching to this grace, grace, grace. It's grace alone that saves us. It's grace alone that sustains us, and it's grace alone that brings us home. We don't have any ability to do anything outside of God's grace. And you know the real problem about the seesaw that I created, and I know a lot of us create, um, in trying to figure out this Christian life, it was, it was all about me. At the end of the day, the seesaw is all about what I was doing or not doing. It was all about, was I doing too much or was I doing too little? And I took my eyes off God. Because if you remember, like all of us, when we all have that feeling like, man, I wish I was just alive when I became a Christian. When I became a Christian, I felt so close to God. Where is that? Where is that? Well, it's because we actually end up taking our eyes off God and what he does and is continuing to do, and we start looking at ourselves. Um, the only time I experienced God's grace was at the very beginning when I got saved because I was looking at him in awe and at wonder and amazement that he wants me after what I had done. Over time, though, flesh struggles to believe that this amazing news could still actually be true because we start to sin after we're saved. And it's like, ah, God, let me erase that. Let me fix that. Let me not do that again. And so you, you instantly come back to the seesaw. We're like, oh, I got to get more right with God. Uh, I got to just really experience God's love for me. Uh, I got to get more right with God. 
I can't stop sinning. I need more grace. And there's that balancing act that we all try and do when we try to stay in God's good graces. And I know this is a lot of your stories. I've heard your stories, and it's all of us. We're all in that same boat. So when we lose view of God and make our life about ourselves again, it's what we're doing, what we're not doing, what we should do. And so today, when we're saying by grace alone, um, we tend to think of grace as a one-time thing. Grace is actually what God has saved, and now it's on us to do everything else. But the very essence of being a Christian is that you believe God's grace is for you, believing that God has been, is, and will continue to grace you as his very own child, that his grace does not run out, that his grace is eternal, because God's eternal, and God can't do things temporarily. His grace is just who his character is, and so it never runs out, even after you come to him. And that's the starting point. That is the foundation. Through God's grace, we were saved and continue to be saved. Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. Everything is grace. Grace, God's grace alone is our motivation for doing anything. And God's grace alone is the reason we do anything, quote, good. So in verse 10, if we look back at it, it reveals that we do have purpose as receivers of God's grace. It's not just that we receive God's grace and just sit there. There's purpose and there's reason for us as his created beings to receive God's grace and to extend it out into creation. We're not saved by good works. I think all of us would agree on that. But we are saved for good works. So works does not save us, but when we are saved, when we are in grace, we are to do the work of God that God has prepared for us in advance, to do good things because he's declared them as good. So we're not just saved for a future, beautiful, heavenly destination that God has prepared, but we're also saved for good works now that God has also prepared. God, the fact that he's even prepared anything for us is his grace towards us. But he has prepared something for every single person in this room. And what he hasn't prepared you to do is to come to Christ and then walk away like, thanks for the ticket, I'm out. No, because that's not loving. He knows you, he created you, and he has a purpose for you, and he's prepared what it is. Are you seeking God? Are you living under his roof of grace saying, wow, this is immense joy that I get to have with you, Father, because you pursued me, and you came to me, and now you've prepared a lane for me to walk in, and you've, you've actually graced me with a new heart and a new mind, and I, I can actually be present with you with the Spirit. You've left the Spirit for me. That's grace, and that I didn't deserve any of it, and yet you keep blessing me. It's It's unbelievable. Grace is not simply leniency when we have sinned. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. Grace is power, not just pardon. Grace isn't just a ticket out of hell. Grace isn't just a ticket 
to erase your past. Grace is actually the power that we live in right now, the love that we get from God right now that enables us to move away from sin. We cannot not sin if we try on our own. But actually grace and what it does and when we understand grace and when we live in grace and we start worshiping and loving God, our eyes turn from sin actually to God because that's way more attractive than this. That's the Christian life. You can't just... You can't just put on your Christian coat and pretend that you can do all the Christian things. God's grace for us is the reason and the power in which we can joyfully lay down our lives and pursue the good and righteous work that God has prepared for us. Um, If you have trouble letting go or laying down your life and your sins, welcome to the club. But if you have trouble with it, it's most likely because you have an incorrect view of God's love for you. If you don't believe that God can love you and accept you in spite of your sins, if you don't believe that, I would say you're not a Christian. Because God sent Jesus in the midst of our sinning against him to love us and accept us. He offered as a gift. If you believe you are working hard enough and you're actually a pretty decent person, a quote, good person, Um, And that's why you're accepted by God, because you do good things. I would say you're not a Christian. If you feel like you can do whatever you please under the banner of grace, I would ask, do you really know the Father? Like, do you know his character? Do you know the, the one who has given you grace? Do you really care about him? And do you really understand what he's done for you? Because... If you did, you wouldn't run and just do whatever you wanted. You would be running towards him and not away. And if you are scared about really trusting God enough to entrust your whole life, everything, leaving everything behind and saying, God, take my life while you're here on earth. If you, if you really have, like, you're scared to, like, die to yourself because, man, you have a lot of likes, desires, I would say look to the cross. It wasn't a metaphor for Jesus. He trusted the Father with his literal life. Like, Jesus died, literally died, trusting that the Father would not abandon him. God has always proven himself as faithful to all of his promises. So whatever God promises, he never goes against his promise. He, it's never happened. It's never happened in eternity that if God has promised something, that it did not come true. The time is maybe not where we want it to be, but it always happens. And if it hasn't happened yet, it's going to happen. His track record is perfect. And God has promised that he will fully commit himself to his people, even as they flounder, even as they run off and totally screw up. He will not abandon or forsake them, but he will still view them as his children, just as the father viewed his lost son, even when he went so far away. But when they came back, just immense joy from the father that his son was back and his daughter was back. Um, For some unknown reason to us, right, God gives himself to us. That's true. He's promised to do that, and he has done that. He had 
not only gives himself, but he attaches himself to us. Like he is present with us. He gave us his spirit. And he acts to rescue us. He does not want to see us flounder and die in sin. Because if he, if he did, he wouldn't have sent his son to die for us. He wouldn't have sent his spirit to convict us. God wants everyone to come home. Everyone. So I want you to think about when wrath should definitely come our way because of how we view God, either that we run away from him and do our own thing, or we think we're doing enough that God should accept us. That instead of wrath for being unbelievably prideful or unbelievably just uh, foolish, saving grace comes instead. That God sends himself to us. Let's pray.